As the weather gets colder and our schedules get busier, most of us appreciate a cup of hot coffee in the morning, even more than we usually do. In today's podcast, learn from the Reverend Tim Shank about the connection between that magnificent morning hit of coffee and our Christian faith. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the Church Next podcast on what here, at least, is a lovely fall day. My name is Elizabeth Brignac, and you're listening to episode number 32 of the Church Next podcast, Holy Grounds, the surprising connections between coffee and faith with Tim Shank. And most of you are going to know Father Tim through his popular Lenten devotion, Lent Madness, that unique combination of basketball brackets, stories of the saints, and spiritual growth. And as well as being a Lent Madness founder and a coffee aficionado, Tim is the rector of St. John the Evangelist in Hingham, Massachusetts, and he's the author of four books, and he writes the popular monthly syndicated column In Good Faith and the Clergy Confidential blog. So if you want to hear more from Tim, go check out those resources. Our podcasts are curated from our online learning library at churchnext.tv, so you can learn more about us there, and if you'd like to support us, consider a $9 monthly subscription. Your generosity helps us produce digital experiences that help shape disciples. Many of us find spirituality in everyday activities, gardening, taking a walk, caring for our children. In this class, we'll learn about how we can find spirituality in making and drinking coffee. Father Tim Shank has been a coffee connoisseur almost as long as he's been a Christian, And he's written a book on the subject of faith and coffee entitled Holy Grounds, The Surprising Connection Between Coffee and Faith, From Dancing Goats to Satan's Drink. And if that title doesn't intrigue you, then you and I are different. I need to go read that book now. Today we'll hear from Tim on some of the connections that he draws in his book between coffee and faith. Coffee is one of the most consumed drinks in the world. Some studies place it second only to water in terms of popular consumption. Lists seem to differ on that point. Some put tea or beer at the top, but it tops most lists of the most consumed beverages in the world. Across the world, people make it as part of their daily rituals. In Ethiopia, coffee drinking can be an hour-long ritual. In Turkey, they say that coffee should be as black as hell, as strong as death, and as sweet as love. Espresso drinks are ubiquitous in Italy, and the Vietnamese served iced coffee with thick, sweet, condensed milk. Debates about the difference between Mexican café con leche, French café au lait, which is sometimes made with espresso in France, and Italian café lattes abound, but it's safe to say that across all of these countries, people like espresso served with hot foam milk. In Hong Kong, coffee is served mixed with milk tea. Brazil produces the most coffee in the world, but Scandinavians drink it the most. Coffee is common everywhere, in short, and it impacts people's day-to-day lives all over the world. It can be fancy or expensive, basic, affordable, served in big mugs, tiny cups, drunk on the go, savored slowly. In all its forms, people love it. Because we use it so much, both in our culture and in our churches, it's only fitting that as Christians we examine this drink in our midst. What is its role in our social lives? Are we using coffee in wholesome and meaningful ways? Do we savor it as part of God's creation? 
What consideration do we give to the ways that coffee is made and processed in terms of how we relate to God's creation and in terms of how we relate to one another? In this class, the Reverend Tim Shank takes us on a journey examining the origins and rituals of coffee preparation and consumption, and he discusses how the early Christians responded to coffee in ways that were surprising, um, in ways in which how we choose to prepare and drink coffee can affect our spiritual lives. And he discusses our responsibility as Christians to consider how our consumption of coffee affects people's lives across the world. Um, How can we consume coffee in ways that build communities responsibly rather than participating in exploitation? Tim has ideas on all of these points. In America, most of us enjoy coffee. Even if we don't drink it, we accept its central role in our society. We meet people at coffee shops. We take coffee breaks. We use coffee to bring people together at work and at church and at social events. We orient our work around access to coffee, and we aren't alone in this obsession. In his first talk, Tim discusses coffee's potential as a great unifier because it's so universally beloved and because it crosses so many cultural barriers. We joke about coffee being the eighth sacrament of the church or the third sacrament for our more Protestant friends, but every jest often belies a deeper truth. And the truth is coffee plays a significant role in our lives for Many of us, coffee, like Jesus, is a constant companion. We begin our day with the ritual brewing or procuring of the world's second most consumed beverage behind only water. Coffee consumption transcends race and culture, geography and religion. In an era of globalization, coffee truly is a global commodity grown exclusively in a band along the equator known as the Bean Belt, but enjoyed by people everywhere. In a time of deep division, coffee, I believe, has the potential to unite us by inviting conversation and building community across cultures. At least that's the unlocked potential I see in the coffee bean. But where did this magical elixir come from? For many people, that's easy enough. It comes from Starbucks or some big can at the grocery store or their local independent coffee roaster. But the underlying story of coffee's discovery is much more interesting. There's a wonderful, if apocryphal, coffee origin story that involves dancing goats in ninth century Ethiopia. It revolves around a young goat herder named Kaldi, who one day took a short midday nap, as he was wont to do. And when he awoke, the goats in his care had disappeared. Panicked, he raced up the hill toward a clearing and observed something remarkable. The goats were dancing. Upon closer inspection, he noticed they were eating some bright red berries. Amazed, he stuck a handful of these berries in his pocket, regained control of his flock, and headed straight to the local monastery to share the miraculous story with the head monk. Intrigued but dubious, 
the monk, well, we can let Faustus Neroni, the 17th century Italian coffee historian, take it from here. He resolved to try the virtues of these berries himself, thereupon boiling them in water and drinking thereof, he found by experience it kept him awake in the night. Hence it happened that he enjoined his monastery the daily use of it, for this procuring watchfulness made them more readily and surely attend their devotions, which they were obliged to perform in the night. What I love about this story, besides the fantastic image of dancing goats, is Coffee's early connection to the prayer of the faithful. The community's very first response was to give thanks for Coffee's impact on their ability to be more faithful in their night prayers. I also love that we have Muslims to thank for discovering coffee. Whether or not dancing goats were actually involved, the first coffee drinkers were Sufi mystics. And as we live in a time that so desperately craves interfaith connections, a shared coffee backstory offers an opportunity to see one another, especially those with whom we don't share a culture with fresh eyes. Knowing that our common history binds us together and shines light upon our similarities, rather than focusing on our differences, reveals one of the true gifts of coffee culture. So from the very beginning, coffee and faith have been intertwined. Whether you need that cup of coffee to get you out the door, for that early Sunday morning service, or you stay afterwards for the aptly named coffee hour to build community by spending time with fellow parishioners, coffee continues to play an integral role in faith traditions around the world. In this sense, coffee truly is the universal sacrament. We all experience and need ritual. Everyday rituals are such a part of our daily lives that sometimes we put them on autopilot. We don't always think about our activities as rituals or experience them mindfully, but if we stop thinking on autopilot and start to think about them more carefully and experience them intentionally, they can become spiritually nurturing experiences. And one such ritual is our daily coffee preparation, or it can be our daily coffee preparation. The ritual of coffee preparation in our morning hours or throughout the day can be more than just a daily task that we require to get coffee into our systems. It can serve as a spiritual devotion, a holy means of enjoying beauty in the ordinary. And in his second talk, Tim offers ways to infuse mindfulness and holiness into our everyday coffee preparation ritual. From the beginning of time, patterns of ritual action have coexisted with the human condition. 
ritual provides meaning and comfort and adds a layer of stability and control atop a chaotic and ever-changing world, from rites of initiation to religious puberty rites to prescribed ceremonies around death. As human beings, we crave ritual. Perhaps the one ritual that unites people all over the world is the preparation of their morning coffee. Different methods exist, of course, from the automatic drip maker to the French press to the Chemex, which is my personal preference. In American kitchens, this can take various forms, from the guy stumbling downstairs, taking his bag of Folgers out of the freezer and hastily scooping out enough for the first pot of the day, to the urban hipster grinding his single-origin beans, weighing them on a digital scale, and reverently pouring the water over the ground with his gooseneck kettle. However you brew or procure your coffee, I encourage you to approach it mindfully, to see it as an opportunity to be drawn ever closer to the divine. As with regular morning devotions, the prayerful preparation of coffee can serve as an anchor for the rest of the day, at least on occasion. Like if you're the first person up in the morning and the kitchen is unusually quiet and calm. Or if it's the weekend and no one's rushing out the door to work and school. From my own tradition, I like to look back to the approach of St. Benedict of Nursia, the fourth century monk and father of Western monasticism. From Benedict, we learn of the connection between body, mind, and spirit. He also teaches the importance of seeing the sacred in the everyday mundane things. For instance, when a monk under Benedict's rule was engaged in manual labor, he was encouraged to view the rake or the shovel as a holy object. As long as the work was offered to the glory of God, the implement in his hands was viewed as worthy and as sacred an object as the communion chalice. Approaching life from this perspective can change your entire outlook and infuse deeper meaning in all things. Applying this concept to making coffee allows us to turn our ritual coffee preparation into a form of morning devotions. We can prayerfully grind our beans, mindful of the many hands and lives who brought them into our midst, the farmers who harvested them, the workers who processed them and bagged them for shipment. We can give thanks for the water of baptism as we slowly pour the water into the coffee maker or offer a prayer to the sustainer of all creation whose rain waters the earth, giving life and growth. We can take in the coffee's aroma, pausing for a rare moment of reflection in our busy and overscheduled lives. Yes, there are times when we're just trying to make it through the day. I get that. Those days when 
the only prayer we're saying as we stare at the coffee maker is, please, God, hurry up. But on those days in between, I encourage you to slow down, whatever your brewing method, and revel in the experience and joyful gift of this beautiful beverage. Coffee has grown so much in popularity over the hundreds of years within Christian communities that the term coffee hour is synonymous with social time after church or social time before church. But if some of the earliest Christians who encountered coffee had had their way, we might be having tea hour or juice hour. Initially, some members of the church approached coffee with suspicion because they associated it with Islam. According to legend, Pope Clement VIII had to, quote, baptize coffee in order for the church to accept it. Opening up to coffee took letting go of standard beliefs, rethinking a position and embracing something new, a challenge that the church has had to meet repeatedly over the centuries in different contexts. In his next talk, Tim discusses the Christian responses to and legends about coffee and what they can teach us about our lives as a community today. Did you know coffee was controversial? At least when it was first introduced into Christian circles in the West. Yes, it's become a ubiquitous part of post-worship fellowship. It's hard to imagine church life without coffee hour. It's hard for me to imagine leading an eight o'clock service without first having had a cup of coffee. I mean, you try saying innumerable benefits procured unto us by the same without first having had some coffee. But as with all things new, coffee was met with resistance when it was first introduced in Rome in the 16th century. Why? Because of its association with Islam. Its detractors saw it as a dark, bitter, pagan drink. Satan's brew, they called it, an accusation rooted in racism and fear of the other. Some of the more conservative forces within the Vatican tried to have Pope Clement VIII ban coffee altogether, denouncing this liquid heresy as an invention of Satan. Fortunately, the Pope, not wanting to make an ill-formed pronouncement, had some coffee prepared and brought to him. It said that he then anointed coffee as a beverage for all Christians, reportedly declaring why this Satan's drink is so delicious that it would be a pity to let the infidels have exclusive use of it. We shall fool Satan by baptizing it and making it a truly Christian beverage. Whether or not this exchange actually took place, it does serve as a window into human nature. Some resist change, some embrace it, but life moves on. Now, as long as we're doing this series on coffee, I do feel a certain responsibility to introduce you to the church's patron saint of coffee. If you pay much attention to saints, something I've been known to do over the years, you might not be surprised that there is indeed a patron saint of coffee. 
You might not imagine, however, that a cup of coffee never once passed his lips. Saint Drogo of Seaborg was a 12th century Frenchman born into a wealthy family in the extreme northern part of the country. However, his father died before he was born and his mother died in childbirth, leaving him an orphan. Perhaps feeling guilt over his entrance into the world, Drogo forsook all worldly wealth and earned his living as a shepherd. Known for his gentle piety and kindness to all he encountered, Drogo also undertook numerous religious pilgrimages to Rome. During this time, he also became renowned for his ability to bilocate, that is, appearing in two places at once. Numerous witnesses claimed they saw him attending mass and working out in the fields at the same time. As a young man, an unnamed bodily affliction struck Drogo, which left him deformed and ended his ability to go on pilgrimages. The townspeople, who were very fond of Drogo, helped him build a cell attached to the local church that included a small window so he could participate in the liturgies. Drogo spent the next four decades living in solitude and subsisting on water, barley, and communion, not coffee, while praying and offering counsel to anyone who stopped by to visit. So why is Drogo the patron saint of coffee and coffee houses? I really have no idea. But my theory is his ability to bilocate mimic the effects of an over-caffeinated multitasker. We hear the phrase drink responsibly applied to alcoholic drinks. And in this lesson, Tim argues that we should apply it to coffee as well. Coffee farmers don't receive most of the proceeds of the coffee they grow and harvest. Only about 7 to 10 percent goes to them. And commercial-grade coffee farms sometimes use slave labor and child labor. And for this reason, Tim argues that Christians should strongly consider drinking fair trade coffee. It's the power of the small that can compel and will fairness and equity to our brothers and sisters who farm and harvest the coffee that we all enjoy so much. As Christians, it is our duty to be vigilant, to be proactive, and to ensure the well-being of all God's people as we enjoy God's creation. In this last section of today's podcast, Tim talks about ways to drink coffee responsibly. If you ask most people where they get their coffee, they'll either mention the name of their favorite coffee shop or a particular brand. But from a spiritual perspective, it's important to go deeper, to take a journey along the supply chain. And to do that, you have to go to where it all begins, to the coffee farms. Not physically, perhaps, though if you ever get the chance, it's a transformative experience, but at least theoretically because coffee is an agricultural product. It's grown on small trees, shrubs, really, in the form of cherries with two seeds or beans inside. As first world consumers, we often forget this. And by ignoring this fact, 
we remain blind to the plight of millions of people who pick, harvest, and process the beans that eventually end up in our fancy lattes and cappuccinos. The first step is awareness. And so we do need to take a look at coffee's shadow side. And you can't look at the darker side of the coffee industry without first examining its history. We all love those images of, say, Voltaire drinking coffee in Parisian cafes. It's just so romantic to envision him tossing back cups of coffee while writing Candide. But the coffee he was drinking came at a very real human price. The slave trade followed the age of empire and the golden age of European empire building and coffee producing nations coincided with the rise of coffee culture on the continent. It went hand in hand with the importation of black slave labor from Africa. That's simply the hard and painful reality that we ignore to our spiritual detriment. But even now, those at the bottom rung of the coffee supply chain, the pickers, often live in dreadful conditions. Even at the high-end specialty coffee farms I've visited in Central America, where pickers earn more than the minimum wage, the poverty is devastating. At commodity-grade farms, economic slavery, debt peonage, and even child labor are real and continuing issues. Fortunately, there are some folks actively working to counteract these forces of darkness. You've likely heard of the fair trade movement, which was actually started in the 1950s by a passionate Mennonite laywoman from Akron, Ohio, named Edna Ruth Byler, who was known both for her generous spirit and her scrumptious cinnamon rolls. Though it started with Puerto Rican handicrafts after Byler happened to vacation in that country, the fair trade movement finally made it to the coffee industry in the 1980s. And as the name implies, it's all about making sure people are paid fair wages. Well, that's the goal of the authentic fair trade movement. You have to be careful and ask a lot of questions because for some, it's become little more than a corporate marketing scheme. It's why the partnership between Episcopal Relief and Development and Equal Exchange Coffee can make such a difference in the world. They ask the right questions and help those of us who care about the exploitation of workers and small farmers and environmental sustainability to align our purchasing power with our faith values. For literally pennies per cup, you can transform lives and act as a steward of creation. In the end, Jesus reminds us again and again that small things like purchasing a fairly traded cup of coffee that lifts the burden of exploitation are just as important as grand gestures. It's why he tells his disciples that Faith the size of a mustard seed can move mountains. It's why he washes feet and cooks breakfast and interacts with children. Small gestures 
can serve as windows into our souls while offering hope to a broken world. Thank you, friends, for joining me on this journey of coffee discovery. I hope you learned a few things, found a bit of inspiration along the way, and learned that as a consumer, you can make a big difference in the world. Cheers. As we wind up our podcast for today, here are a few suggestions for further learning about coffee and Christianity and Christian spirituality in relation to coffee. First, try Tim's book, Holy Grounds, The Surprising Connection Between Coffee and Faith, From Dancing Goats to Satan's Drink. Also, Episcopal Relief and Development's webpage has an outline of the Fair Trade Project, which explains fair trade coffee and chocolate and gives participants access to fairly traded coffee, tea, and chocolate. 10,000 Villages stores partner with chocolate makers and coffee makers across the country, so you can also buy fairly traded coffee and chocolate there. Church Next classes on similar topics include Everyday Spiritual Practices with Keith Andrews, in which he talks about infusing spirituality into the ordinary, as Tim has done in this talk about infusing spirituality into our drinking and preparation of coffee. Water and Justice with Fletcher Harper discusses water as a resource and making it accessible to others and appreciating clean water as a great gift in God's creation. And that's the end of today's podcast. Thanks for tuning in. If you'd like to learn more about us, go to churchnext.tv. And the blessings of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit be with us all today and always. Amen. Amen.